friends, welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. I am, of course, your host, James Corbett, broadcasting to you, as always, from my palatial home recording studios in the sunny climes of western Japan. And I am coming to you from the 12th of November, 2011, although it is probably the 11th of November, if you're listening to my voice live right now in North America. And, by the way, to all the people at 1140KHFX in Dallas-Fort Worth, a special welcome to all of you out there tonight. And it's a pleasure to have you all on board for this continuation of Corbett Report Radio. And as you may or may not know, tonight is, of course, Friday night, which means it's time for our Friday night highlight edition of the broadcast. And for people who are new to Corbett Report Radio, Friday nights will be a, a night for me to go and dip into the Corbett Report archives, some of the articles, interviews, videos, and other work that I've done for CorbettReport.com over the last few years, and to uh, dig through for some of the uh, the best work out of there to, to highlight some of the things that I've done in the past. So tonight, we're actually going to be picking up from where we left off uh, on Tuesday night, and as you may or may not remember, on, I'm sorry, on Monday night, we were exploring the wide world of predictive programming, the idea that memes and ideas are being implanted into the various media that we consume in the form of fiction in order to prepare our minds for the coming reality that the people with their hands on the levers of power would like to bring into existence. And granted, this can be a difficult concept to get our heads around because it is kind of mind-numbing to to actually start looking at this and and looking at all of the various implications of what this means. But that's exactly what we'll start doing tonight. And uh, and last time we, we looked at a few examples of of some very specific things that that had uh, seemed to have come true from works like uh, Minority Report, based on a story by uh, Philip K. Dick, or uh, we also looked at uh, Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon, and, uh, and there are many, 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 many more examples of this type of, well, predictive programming, for lack of a better term, and I think that's a pretty good term for it. So tonight, obviously, we're going to be taking a dip into the archives of CorbettReport.com, and we're going to be listening to uh, some videos from YouTube.com slash CorbettReport, my YouTube channel, where you can go and watch some of my 500 or so videos that I've uh, created over the last few years, and I would suggest you would start dipping into that if you haven't already, but I'll uh, I'll put in some some videos tonight that deal specifically with this, and we're going to be listening to some editions of Film, Literature, and the New World Order, which is a series of videos that I've created that uh, that I think are, well, some of my best work in some ways, because I think they, they're really great uh, for to use to get people interested in this particular subject. And I know a lot of the heady geopolitical things and, and uh, the, the serious issues that we talk about from time to time are not the, the most uh, e- easiest uh, foot in the door to start exploring the system that's being created around us. And a lot of people's eyes start to glaze over when you start talking about things like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which I think is very necessary to talk about. But again, it can be a very intimidating subject for people who are who are new to this information or people that you want to introduce to this type of alternative information about the way the world is really structured. But everybody goes to Hollywood movies and everybody reads books and everybody has some understanding of, of the fiction and the effect that it has on people. So to start uh, batting down some of those doors and looking behind and seeing what's there is quite interesting, I think. So so let's start doing that tonight. And we're going to come back with, again, as I say, with some editions of my 
film, literature, and the New World Order series. We're also going to be listening to an excerpt from an interview that I did with a British researcher called Tom Secker, who's done some great work on the 7-7 bombings in London back in 2005. And we had a very, very fascinating uh, conversation about predictive programming. So let's take a, a few minutes break, but don't touch that dial because we'll be right back here on Corbett Report Radio. Insider is a 1999 film from director Michael Mann. It tells the Hollywoodized true story of Jeffrey Wigand, a chief research scientist at Brown and Williamson, one of the biggest tobacco firms in the world. Wigand has it all. An expensive car, a beautiful home, and a happy family. But his life begins to unravel when he is fired for his inability to play along with office politics. Enter Lowell Bergman. He's a producer for 60 Minutes. And he contacts Wigand for help on a routine story about cigarette fire hazards. Little did he know, Wigand had a much bigger story to tell. This is a um, fire safety product study for Philip Morris. Burn rates, ignition propensity, things of this nature. I can very easily explain this to you Lamest terms because it's from another company. But that's as far as I go. As far as you go where? This issue is the drop in the bucket. I can talk to you about what's in here, but I, I can't talk to you about anything else. The film centers on Bergman's attempts to get Wigand to come forward as a corporate whistleblower in the face of opposition and outright threats from the tobacco industry. We worked together for, what was it, three years? Now, the work we did here is confidential, not for public scrutiny, any more than our one's family matters. You're threatening my family now, too? <laughs> now, don't be paranoid, Jeff. But these threats only encourage the hard-nosed Wigand to go ahead with an interview for 60 minutes. You're saying that Brown and Williamson manipulates and adjusts the nicotine fix, not by artificially adding nicotine, but by enhancing the effect of nicotine through the use of chemical elements, such as ammonia. The process is known as impact boosting. While not spiking nicotine, they clearly manipulate it. There's extensive use of this technology known as ammonia chemistry. It allows for the nicotine to be more rapidly absorbed in the lung and therefore affect the brain and central nervous system. The latter half of the film relates Bergman's attempts to get the story on the air despite opposition from CBS, which is being pressured with lawsuits by Big Tobacco. In one of the climactic scenes of the film, Bergman makes a stirring speech about journalistic integrity and the value of truth over money. And Jeffrey Wigand, who's out on the limb, does he go on television and tell the truth? Yes. Is it newsworthy? Yes. Are we going to air it? Of course not. Why? Because he's not telling the truth. No, because he is telling the truth. That's why we're not going to air it. And the more truth he tells, the worse it gets. You are a fanatic, an anarchist, you know that? If we can't have a whole show, then I want half a show rather than no show. 
But oh no, not you. You won't be satisfied unless you're putting the company at risk. What are you? Are you a businessman or are you a newsman? Because that happens to be what Mike and I and some other people around here do for a living. Lowell. Put the corporation at risk? Give me a f***ing break. These people are putting our whole reason for doing what we do on the line. Lowell. What? I'm with Don on this. The viewer is left with the cynical sense of modern journalism as an exercise in placating corporate sponsors and not speaking truth to power. This is mitigated, however, by the portrayal of people like Bergman as Davidian crusaders for truth against the Goliath corporations that attempt to censor the news. The deck may be stacked against people like Weigand, but with journalists like Bergman on our side, we are told, the truth will ultimately out. We are even told that Bergman is a hero. I'm running out of heroes, man. Guys like you are in short supply. Yeah, guys like you too. The message is clear. The system might not be perfect, but one man can make a difference. After all, it worked for Jeffrey Wigand. But what about the whistleblowers with groundbreaking information who are being censored by the system? Where are the Lowell Bergmans of the world for them? 2020 hindsight, Censorship on the Frontline, is the 2009 documentary by filmmaker Paul Verge of Divergent Films. It tells the story of Richard Andrew Grove, a former enterprise software sales rep who blew the whistle on a massive Wall Street corruption scheme centering on the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002. Sarbanes-Oxley was passed in the wake of the Enron-Tyco WorldCom accounting scandals to regulate and restore confidence in the financial services industry. The act requires certain financial service companies to buy specific compliance software, software that would theoretically make it impossible for Wall Street executives to erase any data related to their transactions. But what Richard Grove discovered was that the software he was selling, the very software that was supposed to stop fraud from occurring, in fact contained a backdoor that allowed that fraud to happen in a way that was completely untraceable. NASD was looking at our product and, and they wanted to use it internally and one of the guys across the table says to me, hey, wait a minute, this product has a back door because right here where you're supposed to take this information and put it on the right once read many storage, which is a type of permanent storage, he said there's this jar file and you can delete the jar file and then there's no evidence of that transaction whatsoever. So he was showing me across the table that there's a loophole, there's a back door in the software that allows nefarious transactions to go on even the staggering enormity of the information he had, Grove attempted to blow the whistle via the whistleblower protection provisions of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. He even warned the Securities and Exchange Commission directly of what was happening, but they not only failed to act on his information, they actually went and bought the very backdoor software he had warned them about for their own record-keeping. I was surprised because I went to them expecting to take this evidence and at least have them look at it and say, there's something here, there's nothing here. But when they said, you know, you could get in trouble for sharing this with us, we don't really want to know about this. If it's going on and people are at risk, then, you know, kind of so be it. And provably afterwards, soon thereafterwards, the SEC released a press release announcing that they were using Legato's email extender product to guarantee the integrity of their financial transactions and their records and, the, and all the auditing 
and all the audit trails that need to be there to uh, to work as in a transparent manner as they're supposed to do. Even after proving all of his allegations in a court of law to the satisfaction of the presiding judge, his whistleblower case was eventually dismissed on a fraudulent statute of limitations technicality. Realizing that the regulatory system that was designed to prevent this fraud was actually protecting it, Grove watched The Insider and believed he had found someone who could get his story to the public. Lowell Bergman. A couple weeks before I contacted Lowell Bergman, I had screened a, a film with Russell Crowe, and Lowell Bergman was portrayed in the film by Al Pacino. It was called The Insider, and it's about this whistleblower named John Wygand, and he worked for a cigarette company named Brown Williamson. He was in a similar situation to what I found myself in. He faxed Lowell Bergman in the movie, so I thought, why not look up you know, this guy's fax number, send him a fax. Uh, we corresponded with Bergman. He said, yes, send me all of your evidence. Send a big box of evidence out there with voice recordings and legal documents and all this evidence that I'd collected through what I'd been through that far in my court case. And he had two people working on the investigation of checking out these documents and checking out my claims, and more importantly, the connections that my claims were pointing to between the White House and the founder of the company that I was working at and the Sarbanes-Oxley regulations and the SEC's role in these events. And after a year and a half, I was told that he couldn't do anything for me, that one of the editors had been fired, that the other editor's job at the San Francisco Chronicle had his career threatened and decided he wanted to keep his career. And so after a year and a half of believing that this information was going to make it to the American people vis-a-vis Frontline, I had to come to the realization that... There are some entities out there, in fact, many entities, that benefit specifically from you not getting this information. Neither was John Stossel of ABC's 2020 willing to touch Grove's explosive story, nor any of the dozens of newspapers and magazines he contacted about his case. In the meantime, the largest financial services firms on Wall Street, many of them Grove's former customers, including AIG, Goldman Sachs, Lehman Brothers, and others, have been directly involved in the economic meltdown of 08. Will you tell the American people to whom you lent 2.2 trillion of their dollars, will you tell us who got that money and what the terms are of those agreements? We, would, we explain each of our programs. In terms of the terms, we explain the terms exactly. We explain what the collateral requirements are. We explain what To whom did you explain are. that? It's, it's on our website. Yeah. Okay. So all that information is available uh, in our commercial paper. And who got the money? Hundreds and hundreds of banks. Any bank or, that has uh, access to the U.S. Uh, Federal Reserve's discount. Tell us who they are. No. The various sleights of hand and outright frauds that have been perpetrated on the public has so far cost over $23 trillion of the American taxpayer's money. In The Insider, Hollywood trumpeted one of the successes of the corporate-controlled media. In 2020 hindsight, a Wall Street whistleblower aided by an independent filmmaker on a shoestring budget exposed that Hollywood fantasy as a dangerous delusion. You know, there are millions of people who have been ripped off by these frauds, and there are trillions of dollars that have been stolen from the American people. So I know that there are people out there with resources that can take the information that we're trying to put out and give us the extra boost to be able to get it in front of people, but the first thing you need to understand is the frauds as I've experienced them and, and what I've experienced through trying to go to Frontline and these other media outlets that call themselves investigative journalists when really they're just looking 
to present you with a story that lets you think that something's being taken care of. They'll show you one whistleblower. Oh, here's the woman from Halliburton, and isn't her story great? But they won't show you the 500 other whistleblowers that allow you to see these frauds from a comprehensive 360-degree Google Earth type of perspe you know, perspective where you can do something about it and effectively pass on what you've learned. Corbett Report Radio friends, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com here. And what you just listened to in the last segment was uh, a clip from one of my YouTube videos, again, part of my film, Literature, and the New World Order series, that one about the insider and also the case of Richard Grove. And for those who don't know Richard Grove, of course, not only a whistleblower with respect to that Wall Street case that we talked about in that video, but also someone who has... An interesting story to tell about 9-11, and people may know Richard Grove's story from the 9-11 Synchronicity podcast, or perhaps even from the Project Constellation audio that, that really kicked that whole, that whole podcast into existence and, and really uh, started Richard Grove down a, a very interesting path. Or they might know him from his current work at TragedyAndHope.com and the Peace Revolution podcast, but if not, I would suggest people out there check it out, because uh, I, I really think... He's doing some incredible work, and as I understand it, his uh, big DVD project about uh, interviewing John Taylor Gatto about the education or the schooling system in America and how it's come to be what it is, is uh, ready to go. So I believe those DVDs and Blu-ray discs should be shipping out to anyone who may have ordered those uh, in the past. So, so very exciting stuff coming out of there, and of course I am one of the members of the group of media producers at, at TragedyAndHope.com, so... I'd suggest you check it out and check into some of the other people who are producing some high-quality, commercial-free alternative media at, at that website. Um, and as, as I'm sure you've picked up on that from that video, uh, just an incredible story about the, the backdoor in the software that's supposedly designed to present, prevent fraud, which actually facilitates the fraud. And unfortunately, that's probably not a surprising thing for people who have really studied this system or the way it works, but uh, unfortunately, it is something that, that is extremely common, and I think we have to understand that such ridiculous backdoor situations whereby the thing that we are trying to prevent is in fact facilitated by the thing that is supposed to solve that uh, is, is more common than, than we'd like to, to, to think. And that really just goes to show that trying to solve problems by asking the government to step in with more regulatory framework is almost never the solution because... Uh, because it just ends up turning into a boondoggle like that, where the real criminals who get into positions of power and into the positions of regulatory uh, authority, where else would you go if you were a criminal except in the position of power where you can let your criminal buddies do what they want and, in fact, protect them from doing so by making sure that the, the software that you mandate for them to put in place so that they can't do their financial fraud, in fact, allows them to do their financial fraud. I mean, it just makes basic sense from a basic criminology perspective that's exactly what you would want to do if you were a hardened criminal but unfortunately so many of us out there are just regular people who can't really understand the criminal mind or how it works 
So we're willing to believe that the people in government are really there to help us. They're really there to to do our bidding because we're the we're the people, we're the government. So so they must be on our side. And when things like this are exposed, it can always just be blamed on a few bad apples or just chalked up to government incompetence. Oh, they didn't realize there was a back door in the software. And unfortunately, we've seen that play out all too many times. So predictive programming isn't necessarily all science fiction. For example, in that case, of course, the insider, nothing to do with science fiction, not about predicting the future per se, but about exposing something that is right there in front of our face if we actually choose to look at it, and also exposing the hypocrisy of the Hollywood lie that people like Lowell Bergman and the other corporate uh, news uh, prostitutes, as Gerald Salente likes to call them, are really there... To, to give us the false sense of security, that there's somebody looking out for our interests and that these people may be put upon by the system, but they'll, they'll go right to the wall. They'll even lose their jobs at CBS over this, and, and they'll absolutely stick to their guns when it comes to, for example, prosecuting the tobacco uh, industry. But when it comes to looking at the fundamental financial fraud that's so far stolen tens of trillions of dollars out of the American economy in the last few years... Well, they're not willing to stick their neck on the line for that, are they? And that just goes to show that, uh, unfortunately, once again, we are the uh, the people who have to take this information and run with it because the corporate media just isn't going to do it for us. So, so thank you once again for investing your time in alternative media. And as I say, that's just one example of my film literature in the New World Order series. I also have videos on uh, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, obviously, part of that Huxley-Galton-Wedgwood uh, line that has been so heavily invested in eugenics for the last century and or century and a half now. And uh, perhaps people will know about that if they've done some research. If not, I suggest you go and watch that Brave New World edition of Film Literature in the New World Order online. I've also done uh, Br- uh, Blade Runner, which, of course, is another Philip Gate Dick story. And uh, we've all also taken a look at uh, 2001, and uh, recently there was another edition of the series on Franz Kafka's The Trial, which is an interesting story for anyone who's ever read it, and I think it does have very interesting parallels to the age in which we're living. And I would love to do more editions of this series. I think this topic of predictive programming and looking at uh, examples of Hollywood films and books and things that, that speak to the situation we find ourselves in politically, to me that's extremely fascinating. And I know there are a lot of people who are interested in this, but just the amount of work that I'm doing on a daily basis, I just don't have time for this. So so unfortunately, I, I don't have time to do this on a, on a weekly basis that I would like, or even on a monthly basis. But there are still occasionally on YouTube.com slash Corbett Reports edition of this series coming out. So I'll commend you that to your attention. But let's take a few minutes break. And when we come back, we're going to come back with a fascinating interview that I conducted with Tom Secker, uh, who's researching into 7-7, about predictive programming and 7-7. My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away In the end You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network Because you can handle the truth Friends, welcome back to Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting, and I am your host, James Corbett, coming to you from CorbettReport.com. And I'd like to get straight into this fascinating conversation that I conducted earlier this year with Tom Secker, 
and he is a researcher who has been creating documentary films on 7-7, the July 7th bombings uh, in 2000, from 2005 in London, and uh, looking at the false flag aspects of those, the, those events. And he's done some great documentaries on the subject, including 7-7, Seeds of Deconstruction, and 7-7, Crime and Punishment. So I'll commend those to your attention. And if you want links to uh, that or any of the other videos or things mentioned in this or any other episode of this Corbett Report Radio, please go to CorbettReport.com after tonight's broadcast, and I'll put up in the show notes links to those uh, particular videos. But right now, let's get straight into this conversation where I ask Tom Secker about the, the various TV and uh, movies and other programming that seemed to predict or talk about the 7-7 false flag bombings. So you have, starting in, I think, 2002, you have a whole bunch of episodes of the BBC spy drama, Spooks. It's known as MI5 in its foreign form because, you know, the word spooks can, has certain racist connotations in America, so they don't use that title. Um, and this is a spy drama. It is based around MI5 agents supposedly trying to stop terrorist attacks and getting up to all sorts of dirty shenanigans along the way. Um, but also, you have a, a couple of documentaries. Uh, you have the, the rather well-known panorama program called London Under Attack, which what had a kind of panel of experts responding to a fictional terrorist attack that was very, very similar to 7-7, very similar indeed. Uh, you also have a BBC HBO film production called Dirty War. And again, there's on my blog, I've, I've put up links to all of these episodes and all of these films where I've been able to find them online so that people can go and watch the whole thing if they want to. Um, and what you have in, in these things is a sort of, again, a kind of mixture of different memes in various different combinations that in some way replicated what then eventually happened on 7-7. And most of these films and TV shows and what have you took place before 7-7, so they had the effect. And I'm not saying this was an intentional thing. I'm not saying this was part of some kind of propagandist plot. It may have been. It may not have been. Um, but it certainly had the effect of conditioning people to believe not only the official conspiracy theory, the one about four Muslim suicide bombers, but also some of the alternative conspiracy theories, such as they were you know, set up as part of a terrorism training exercise and what have you. So... If we look at some of this, we have, uh, as far as I know, the first ever depiction of a Islamic Muslim uh, suicide bombing in Britain on, on British television actually took place in, I think, early 2003 in an episode of Spooks. A young Muslim lad is sort of manipulated by a, a cleric, radical cleric, into blowing himself up in, uh, in Birmingham. So we have this, this meme planted in the consciousness of the, the British public, long before the event even happened. We also have MI5 staging an attack, i.e. faking an attack, against a London tube station. And the, the station that they chose was uh, Broad Street Station, which is basically Liverpool Street Station, old version. Um, it's, no, it's a disused station now, but it's, it's right next door to Liverpool Street. Um, you also have... A episode in July 2003, on the 7th of July 2003, for those that are into numerology, uh, where MI5 are carrying out a terrorism training exercise, and during the exercise, an attack for real actually happens, though it turns out in a twist at the end of the episode that it's all been simulated, it was all just part of the exercise all along. 
So again, we have this notion of attack coinciding with exercise, which is something that has happened for real on several occasions. Um, but again, we have that sort of particular conspiracy theory being presented to the public before the event then happens for real on 7-7, where you have these supposed suicide bombings happening at the same time as Peter Power, management consultant, is running a terrorism training exercise that's based around a, broadly speaking, very similar scenario. Um, so, were we being manipulated? The question, I suppose, for me is, if this was all intentional, if this was a deliberate uh, conditioning of the public and preparing of the public, then we haven't only been prepared for the official conspiracy theory, we have also been prepared for the alternative, or at least some of the alternative conspiracy theories. And so, if that's what they were trying to do, what is the implication for us, for people in, you know, independent investigators, citizen investigators, uh, truth movement activists, whatever? Um, what, are we sort of being sent down a cul-de-sac or being sent down a sort of to follow a trail of breadcrumbs that doesn't go anywhere or leads to a mousetrap or, or whatever? Um, I don't know the answer to that. I can't be certain. But I, I, I feel it's something people should be considering when, when they go into this and when they investigate it for themselves. I, I very much I understand what you're saying here, and, and uh, but it, it does seem just such a... Uh, such a disappointing or, or a disheartening conclusion to come to, to, to say that we just, well, we, we don't know the answer to that. I, I don't want to leave that as a rhetorical question, because it seems to raise something that seems to be at the very heart of the matter. If there is some sort of overarching conspiracy to implant this meme in the pop culture before and after the events in order to condition us to expect some sort of alternative narrative, then, then how can that not imply that there is some sort of uh, grander conspiracy that's functioning at least broadly in the ways that the alternative narrative would consider it to be functioning. I mean, what would be the point of implanting that, and, and what could it possibly be obfuscating in terms of hiding from, from what was really happening that day? Well, um, the reason why I say that I'm uncertain, I'm not saying we, can't, we cannot know this. I'm saying given the research that I've done into it, I've got to this point, I have not been able to get any further, I have not been able to establish with any greater certainty that if this was a deliberate conditioning plot, if you like, then who was responsible for it? Because I haven't really been able to find any proper connections between the people producing these various different shows and who was writing them and who was acting in them. If there were those connections, I would say so. I would say I found them and, and these are the people we should be looking into in order to, to try and make more sense of this. But I couldn't find them, so I cannot offer a conclusion for which I have no evidence, or at least I don't think it would be very honest to uh, to do so. Um, so I, I, I certainly think people should should pursue that line of inquiry. I mean, obviously, if I didn't have that suspicion, I wouldn't have devoted 20 minutes of the film to exploring it. Um, but I cannot be certain at this stage because I don't have that information. Um, now, yeah, sure, if there was some kind of plot to implant these memes in different combinations to, to conditioners, to preconditioners, to respond in a certain way once the attacks had happened, then obviously, yes, of course, that would likewise suggest that the attacks themselves were part of the same conspiracy, were part of the same plot. Um, and I have no problem whatsoever with people looking for those connections and trying to explore that as a possibility. Um, but I think we should we should also be honest with ourselves that 
you know, we, we can invent a conspiracy theory about anything if we want to. It's a very easy thing to do. Um, that doesn't mean that any particular conspiracy theory is wrong, or that doesn't even mean that doing that is, is wrong, but we should just be aware of it, that conspiracy theories aren't something that are completely denied by the mainstream. That's quite a popular thing to say in the independent media, that they just ridicule conspiracy theories, but they don't. They propagate them. They propagate both official conspiracy theories about 9-11 or Saddam's weapons of mass destruction or whatever, um, but they also propagate speculative conspiracy theories in the form of shows like The X-Files and, and you know, conspiracy thriller films and, and fiction and, and all the rest of it. So, so these aren't things that are sort of completely alien to the mainstream culture. They are actually quite commonly present in the mainstream culture. So we should be careful of... I suppose, leaping on any particular conspiracy theory that has been presented to us by the mainstream. That's what we should be particularly wary of. And that applies to both conspiracy theories in the official sense, where it's always blamed on an outside party, it's always blamed on the rogue state or the terrorists or whoever, but also those conspiracy theories where they are the blame turns inwards, where it is blamed on the police or MI5 or the government in some way. We should treat all of these with scepticism, not as a means of just sort of shrugging your shoulders and saying, oh, well, we'll never find out, so it doesn't really matter, but so that we don't get tricked, so that we don't end up chasing pointless stories and pointless theories for which we don't really have any evidence, um, and spending, you know, it's wasted effort, it's wasted time, um, and it's also strategically a bit dim, I think, to, to leap on a conspiracy theory as an alternative explanation simply because it blames who you think may have been responsible for it. You know, there is the question of who did 7-7, but there is also the question of how it was done, and all too often people confuse the two. Now, the way I see this situation, um, or I am increasingly seeing this whole situation, is this is a interrogation. We are the citizens, we are interrogating the state. We are we suspect that they have may have been involved in this horrendous crime, and with good reasons for those suspicions. There are lots of historical precedents, and the official version of this does not make any bloody sense. So that suspicion is perfectly well founded. And of course I share it. Um but if you're in an interrogation with a suspect, the state is in effect a criminal suspect in this situation. If you're in an interrogation, does it make more sense to march into the interrogation room and say, we know you did it, we know how you did it, and this is how you did it? Because what happens if you've got it wrong? What happens is the suspect sits there and rather smugly thinks, ah, these people aren't as smart as they think they are. They don't really know that I did it. They don't really know how I did it. So if I just shut up and don't really engage them in this, chances are nothing will come of it because they won't be able to really go anywhere. However, if you march into the interrogation room and you say, we've had a look at your alibi, and in this context the alibi would be the Home Office narrative, we've had a look at your alibi, and your alibi doesn't make any sense. In fact, some of it is obviously untrue. So, what's going on here? Then that puts the pressure on them to then have to come up with a new explanation and a new alibi. And if you can get them to do this four or five times, as has sort of happened with the 9-11 situation and the the air defences and, <clears throat> excuse me, and NORAD and all of that, then you get to the point where no one's going to bloody believe them anymore because they're going to have told you four or five alibis, all of which are nonsense. So I think that strategically makes a lot more sense than marching in there and saying, 
we know how this was done, when, in truth, we don't know. Not yet. Hopefully we will. Really, hopefully. You know, we can do this. Um, but at this point, with the evidence we have right now, I think it strategically makes a hell of a lot more sense to just knock down their alibi systematically and, you know, doggedly, knock down their alibis and force the pressure onto them to keep talking about this, rather than make an accusation that we can't really back up properly and have them just sort of sit there and say, well, that's not true. So, sort of. Well, that's, I mean, that's extremely sage advice, and I really do hope that the listeners and viewers do take that to heart and at least consider it, because it, it does strike me as, as counterproductive at times to, to come in thinking that you know everything about what happened and how it happened and who is to blame, and thus really painting yourself into a corner where if you are wrong, or if you get any part of that story wrong, then your entire... Mm theory can be demolished and, and it just doesn't seem like it really serves the purpose. So so I think that is extremely important to, to contemplate and to bear in mind. Um, but it, it also raises, I mean, I, I, this can get very meta, uh, meta-philosophical here and we can, we can ponder the various layers of thinking that can go on, but it, it does seem then that, that a, a type of I suppose meta-conspiracy could be to, to implant the meme beforehand so that when the attacks happen in the exact way that it was implanted in the media, you can say, well, look, you're just looking at this TV show. You, are, you, are you insane? This is just a TV show. It's fiction. Why are, you, why are you positing it? So, for example, with 9-11, we have the lone gunman episode where the rogue elements of the government commandeer a commercial airliner by remote control to fly it into the World Trade Center in order to justify wars in the Middle East. And Lo and behold, that's that's very much a conspiracy theory that is propounded about 9/11 mm, these days. Mm, so, so again, the question becomes: at, at, at a certain point, is it is it valuable to to? Uh, well, actually, I, I I suppose I don't know what what question to ask from that, but it does seem that there is something something very valuable here to to, to ponder and to research. And and you do spend a, a fair deal of time in the in the documentary looking at the seven seven analogs, and it's an interesting subject. But I just don't know where to take it, and and um, and I think there are too many too many levels maybe to really determine at this point. But but what would you suggest for people who are interested in in pondering that aspect of of the uh, of the crime more more deeply or more closely? Well, I mean, firstly, look into all of these, these different films and, and various episodes of TV shows and things that I included in, in, uh, in the documentary. Um, there may be others out there that I've missed. I mean, I tried to do a relatively comprehensive job of the things that I, and, and cover all the things that I thought were particularly significant. Um, but yeah, go, go and watch all of these episodes. And also, you see, I mean, you brought up the, the Lone Gunman and 9-11, but there were other TV shows and films that also predicted 9-11 in various ways. There was an episode of um, Martial Law with Sammo Hung. I think it was the very last episode of the second series, which features a sort of international rogue terrorist group hijacking a series of planes by remote and crashing them into cities. So, once again, we have a very similar kind of scenario, and, and once again, we are presented with a, a conspiracy theory. Um, there are, there are other films and, and other real-life events, of course, as well, that in some way foreshadowed 9-11. So I think it's important to look at all of these things, and I think it's important to see how we are almost being presented with an argument before an event, about an event, before that event has happened. So we are presented with uh, 
simulations, fictional depictions that give us an official conspiracy theory and support an official conspiracy theory, and we are also given the same that support alternative conspiracy theories. So if there is a plot here, then I think the aim would be to push us into these two separate groups. So we are just two different mobs, both of which have their own conspiracy theories, and all we're really getting doing is having a war of conspiracy theories. We aren't really pushing for further investigation. We aren't supporting citizens' investigations like the July 7th Truth Campaign and like the various independents and obviously the groups who have investigated all sorts of other atrocities and other events. Um, we aren't, you know, putting the pressure on the state and putting the pressure on the police to, to reopen their inquiries. Um, and we aren't really encouraging other people to become sceptical so that when further things like this happen in the future, we're already sceptical of them and we're already in a position to investigate them for ourselves. All of that kind of goes out the window. And all of that's, you know, the most important stuff that we can be doing is those three things, pushing for further public inquiry, supporting citizens' investigations, and encouraging scepticism in the public. Those, to me, are the three aims of all of this, or the, the three most important aims. But all of that kind of gets forgotten. If you get engaged in this rather childish and, and herd-like dialogue where all you're really doing is trying to argue that your conspiracy theory is ever so slightly better than the government's conspiracy theory. And sure, a lot of them are. But that doesn't mean they're true. It just means they're slightly better than a load of tosh. And is that really a fight worth having? Is that really a fight worth winning? I don't think so. Welcome back. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you are tuned into Corbett Report Radio. And before the break, we were listening to an excerpt from a conversation that I conducted earlier this year with Tom Secker, again, a researcher who's been doing some great work on the July 7th, 2005 bombings in London. So I will uh, direct your attention to his blog, the Howard Beals News Hour. But uh, I understand that he's also working on creating a new website, and so I will let you know when that transpires, because, as I say, Tom Secker's been doing some excellent work, so I think you should probably take a look into it. And I hope you agree that that conversation was quite fascinating and gets into a lot of the areas regarding this type of predictive programming and how it plays into events like 7-7 or things that are going on in our world and really what that all means, because, again, this is still something of an open question to me. I, I just can't bring myself to believe that uh, Hollywood writers or things like that are, are really in on the inside of these types of plots or have all of the details, and yet these types of things seem to end up in a lot of different TV shows and movies to, to a surprising extent. So whether that indicates inside knowledge or whether it r indicates something like uh, collective unconscious or just a, this sort of general meme of inside job that's floating through the zeitgeist at the moment, or whether it's something completely different. I, I'm not sure, and I don't think that's really decidable, except on a case-by-case -case basis. But I guess that does raise the specter of something else that I've been meaning to bring up in connection to this predictive programming. It's not something I tend to get into because I don't know really where to take it or how to uh, how to put it across. But there is the concept of synchromysticism, which has been put out there in recent years um, by various uh, YouTube uh, users and bloggers out there. And I know there is something of a 
synchro mystic community out there that are working on basically joining dots and making strange, almost ephemeral connections between very disparate subject matter, like this actor appearing in this movie and then in this movie, which also featured this event, and it somehow relates to this other event. And if you haven't seen a synchro mystic video, I don't really know how to explain it to you other than to say it will be eight or nine or ten minutes of seemingly disjointed and random sorts of connections between things that you never thought were connected, and it leaves you in the end thinking you're not really sure what you just watched, but it was somehow kind of amazing. So I'll put in a link to uh, uh, an interesting synchromistic video about 9-11 in the, uh, in the show notes for today's episode, and I guess that will give the flavor of that sort of line of reasoning. But again, I don't really know where to take that, because I don't know how to investigate that type of thing, and I don't know what it all indicates. The... Uh, even the creator of that term, synchromysticism, says it's rather unfortunate that people equate it with some sort of, necessarily some sort of supernatural or religious thing just because of the term mystical. But uh, but there you go, and who knows exactly what level all of this is functioning at, or whether it's just part of our propensity as human beings to find patterns when there are, in fact, none to be found, so we create them. Who knows? But uh, it's a fascinating subject, as I say. So I'm glad that I had the chance to at least go over some of it, and I would once again exhort you to take a look at that film literature and the New World Order uh, series on YouTube, because that is, uh, I think, one of the, the more interesting works that I do, and probably the more accessible for people who aren't so interested in the news and politics angle of all of this. But at any rate, I think we'll have to leave it there for tonight. We're just about out of time, but I just wanted to uh, take a moment just to thank wholeheartedly there's been a couple of people who have made some generous donations in the last couple of days through CorporateReport.com because of my recent computer troubles and having to buy a new computer. So uh, my hat's off to the people who did that. Thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to seeing all of you again next week on Corporate Report Radio.